Welcome to the Power of Food podcast. We are so excited to bring you evidence-based nutrition information focusing on addressing the root cause for imbalance. Food has the power to help you achieve lifelong optimal health without the side effects of prescription medication. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast platform. I am Stacy Seslowski, Functional Nutrition Registered Dietitian. And I am Leah Grace Barrick, Functional Nutritionist. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our episode number eight of the Power of Food podcast. This is a very special day. We are so excited to welcome our first guest. Um, And actually, Leah is going to give our guest a proper introduction. Yeah, thank you, Stacey. We're so excited to have Dr. Kat Bodden here. Kat and I met because a chiropractor in Portland named Dr. Ali Dashiell, who was so kind to introduce us, wanted to let us get to know each other. And we chatted a little bit and immediately, you know, hit it off. And I knew that we needed to have Dr. <laughs> Kat on the podcast. So we're so happy she's here. So I'll just give a little bio for Dr. Kat and let you guys know a little bit about her background before we get started. So Dr. Kat graduated from the National University of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon in 2018. She completed a one-year residency specializing in complex chronic infections, mold illness, and gastrointestinal health. Dr. Bodden started a solo practice in 2020 called Sea Change Medicine, highlighting the profound and notable shift in health that occurs occurs when the root cause of imbalance is identified and treated. Her treatment plans include nutritional therapies, herbal medicine, and daily detoxification practices to support optimal well-being. She focuses not only on reducing symptoms of disease, but emphasizes the importance of adding health, including food as medicine, movement, and mindfulness. Welcome to the Power of Food podcast, Dr. Kat. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Awesome. So one of our um, weekly, uh, what's become a a regular routine for us is to give um, a special share of something that we, that is, we've been either eating or purchasing or reading or learning about this week that we've been um, especially excited about. So I thought I would get started with just a, I've noticed that it's so easy to get stuck in sort of like eating the same things all the time or eating the same flavors and using the same sauces and things like that. And so I started this week off thinking I am sick of everything we've been eating (laughs) and I wanted a new flavor profile. So um, this week I combined, and this might be usual for you guys, but it's something I had not done before. Um, I combined grape tomatoes with olives And then I either used a little bit of white wine when I was making some type of fish or a little bit of red wine when I was doing like more of like um, a red meat, you know, sort of like with pasta kind of thing. And that has become this new flavor that my husband is like, we need to eat this every single night, which is exactly what I'm trying to avoid doing. But anyway, um, the new profile or taste profile of my week of this week for me has been grape tomatoes, olives, and a little bit of that type of wine. And you can really just like 
put it in at like almost like the last minute. It doesn't need a lot of cooking, but it like sort of thickens and makes like a little bit of sauce. And the flavor has been like the perfect amount of sweet and savory and like some of the acid from the wine. So that's what we've been enjoying this week. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I love finding new <laughs> combinations of food that you haven't had before. And then you're just like, oh my God, this is amazing. Where has this been in my whole life? Exactly. So all, yeah. <laughs> I'm sold. <laughs> so I'll go ahead and share mine. Mine is actually a food hack. And Stacy inspired me last week with her kind of food hack with the squash she was cooking. But I have been making my own homemade mayonnaise, which sounds really intimidating, but it's actually pretty easy. And I've done it a few times. It went well. And then the last time I did it, something happened where the immersion blender wasn't really blending it up. And you know, it wasn't really turning into the thick kind of mayonnaise that we all know and love. And so I looked it up online because I hate wasting food. And I basically have this weird like avocado oil, eggy mixture. So I don't know what else I would have done with it. But I looked it up online. And I found that if you put two teaspoons of boiling water in the mixture and you turn the immersion blender on again and you slowly add the water and blend it it actually gets really thick and totally fixes the problem so i ended up with regular mayonnaise which you know store-bought mayonnaise has all those inflammatory oils we're always trying to avoid um and the ones with avocado oil which are better are typically pretty expensive so i love making it at home and this was a great hack so if you ever try it at home and it doesn't work definitely try adding the boiling water i don't know what it is something with like the heat to make it come together so i was really happy with that that sounds awesome. You've got to um, yeah. put that recipe in the notes or something for this so that we could, so I could try it too. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. I've been meaning to post it to my Instagram and I just haven't yet, but I will definitely share the recipe for that mayonnaise. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I love it. What about mayonnaise. you, Dr. Bowden? Yeah. Mine is actually a book I just finished reading um, earlier this month called Breath by James Nestor. And it's basically about how, you know, we breathe, you know, however many thousands of times a day, and most of us are actually doing it incorrectly. So it combines all this kind of ancient wisdom about, you know, pranayama breathing exercises, um, some things about like indigenous populations and how they, they really believed um, in the importance of strictly breathing through the nose. Um, but then he also combines all this kind of cutting edge modern research and it's just absolutely fascinating. He's a really engaging reader. He takes something that, you know, maybe isn't the most exciting topic, but makes it like just super gripping read. I've been recommending it to all my friends and family and patients. Um, yeah, I just couldn't get enough. I love him and his work and it's honestly changed my life. So definitely That's recommend awesome. that one. I definitely have to check that out, especially, I don't know if you guys have heard, I'm a mouth breather, breather at night. And mm -hmm. have you seen like the strips that you put over your mouth to like train yourself to breathe through your nose? I don't know if he talks about that. He but does. I've been meaning to, oh, awesome. He does and I've actually um, been doing it. <laughs> yeah, I just ordered them for like the first time. I was like, okay, I'm gonna look absolutely ridiculous, but I need to try this because I heard you just wake up so much more refreshed and mm. feeling good and your brain is oxygenated so much better so that's really interesting yeah it's really fascinating he actually talks about just using a little piece of surgical tape right here which is what i've mm. been doing and what also happens is if you're prone to waking up multiple times in the night to go pee um breathing just through your nose actually suppresses the adh and so which antidiuretic hormone i'm sorry stimulates antidiuretic hormone antidiuretic mm. 
not peeing. Right. Um, so people actually don't wake up as frequently in the night to go and urinate, which that's been happening to me. I just sleep soundly eight hours through the night. It's it's crazy. You look a little weird with like tape on your mouth, but just doing it right here <laughs> enables you to kind of talk and like if you need to take a sip of water, you can do that. You don't feel completely suffocated. That is so, so interesting. interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I've never heard about waking up to pee in the middle of the night yeah. with that. That's so mm -hmm. fascinating. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing. Mm -hmm. So All I right, think somebody's going to start us off. And so our topic today is all about mold and mold illness. And we're going to dive deep topic, just something that I found a lot of people, you know, outside of the functional medicine world and naturopathic world don't really talk about, aren't really aware of, but it's actually a huge, huge issue. So we wanted to address this. Um, Kat is an expert in this. We're so excited to talk to her about it, pick her brain, have her share all her knowledge with us. So we're gonna just jump right in and start off by talking about what exactly is mold? Where is it usually found? And why is it such an issue for our health? Yeah, so mold is a fungus. It's found pretty much anywhere on the planet. Mold spores are usually kind of flowing through the air. They land on our clothing and they're pretty harmless on, our, on their own. When they start affecting our health is when they get into wet places. So the spores will land in something wet, like um, the common thing that I experience the most is with water damaged buildings. So things like sheetrock, drywall, ceiling tiles, they get wet from a pipe leaking. The mold spores can land there and then they bloom and have this overgrowth. And you know, I'm in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, Oregon. A lot of rain here, a lot of wet buildings, a lot of mold, a lot of mold illness. But mold is also can be an issue in, in the desert too. Um, and that's mostly from the condensation that can happen with air conditioning units. So it's not just something that's in the Pacific Northwest. Some studies have showed that over 50% of buildings in America have had water damage. Um, like to think things like churches, older schools, even hospital systems can get moldy. Um, and mold, you know, in our house, mold in the bathroom on that's on surfaces that are really easy to clean. So shower tiles, the toilet, those things are fine because they're easily wiped off. It's when you have mold in an area that should be dry, that's mm. when it gets to be problematic. The reason it's problematic is because those types of molds that grow in the in the walls and things like that can release mycotoxins. And mycotoxins are toxic metabolites made by the mold that can really affect our health. They get into our body and cause systemic inflammation, um, releasing inflammatory cytokines. They disrupt our gut microbiome. They can cause inflammation in the brain, um, which can lead to a lot of cognitive issues like memory loss, difficulty with word recall, difficulty concentrating, anxiety is huge. Um, and they also get into um, our liver and gum up all the detoxification pathways. Mycotoxins are lipophilic, which means that they um, they like fat, and so they get into our bile, which is a really fatty substance, and basically make it so the liver is unable to not only detox mold, but detox anything else that we're exposed to. So, you know, you highlighted a lot of these things in your in last week's podcast or the last episode. You know, things like chemicals and personal care products, and antibiotics, and chemicals in you know our water and our food and our air. Our bodies now can't only get rid of the mold, they're also kind of getting stuck with all these other toxins as well. Hmm. Um, and lastly, mycotoxins also increase free radicals in the body. 
And that depletes glutathione, which is our major antioxidant in the body, which has so many health implications, specifically around detox. So yeah, not good there. Wow. That is a lot. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And it's crazy. 50% of buildings, like that is nuts. Mm -hmm. And the fact that our bodies are supposed to be able to detox other things, which is exposed to the mold decreases that. It just increases the toxic burden, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. That is nuts. So crazy. I'm glad you mentioned anxiety too, because that is something I actually hadn't heard about until recently, um, that mold really increases anxiety, which I found fascinating, especially, you know, in the midst of a pandemic where they're telling everyone to stay inside. And if you're Mm -hmm. in the water damaged building and you're already anxious and, you know, you have mold sensitivity and your anxiety is increasing, I can only imagine like how much gas on the fire that is, you know? So that's, that's really crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard like anxiety and also even on insomnia, which then could lead to other kinds of health implications. So I also thought actually it was kind of hopeful that you said the mold that you see in the bathroom may not be as dangerous because you can easily more easily just like sort of get rid of it, which that mm-hmm. actually gives me hope. <laughs> so, um, so can you talk a little bit about the different kinds of mold and you know which ones should we be more concerned about and the different also the health implications of each of those? Yeah, absolutely. So most mold isn't poisonous, like I said. Um, a lot of people have heard of the toxic black mold, that's Stachybotrys chartarum. That's kind of the most famous one, the one that you'll see in leases and things like that. And that one is really not good, even in tiny amounts. Um, it can affect anyone. It's Significant exposure can cause internal bleeding, damage our organs, um, and even has been linked to death. Um, So you really wanna be careful for that. It's called toxic black mold, but sometimes it can look a little gray. So it's always good to make sure that you're testing, and I'm sure we'll get into how you test later. Um, Some other hazardous mold species would be Aspergillus, Catomium, Fusarium, Penicillium. All the ones that I just mentioned are the types of mold that secrete these mycotoxins. You know, and some of the mycotoxins they'll get into our lungs, like I said, affect our brain, our liver, our GI tract, um, and they just kind of wreak havoc throughout the body. Yeah, that's yeah. that's really terrifying, honestly. <laughs> exactly what like I you said, of. like I'm in Portland, Oregon, you are too. Even in the desert, like you're not totally clear of these things. So it's really important awareness, especially, you know, if you might be having signs and symptoms. Um, So speaking of which, like, how would somebody know if they have mold illness? Are certain people more susceptible to it? Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I don't want to instill fear in people. I think the, you know, it's just good to know that a lot of people have these symptoms that are super vague, unrelated. You know, my average patient has seen anywhere from seven to 10 doctors in the last however many years. And a lot of them are told, oh, you know, your labs are normal. There's nothing wrong with you. This is just in your head, or this is, you know, just your anxiety here, taking anti-anxiety medication, like there's nothing wrong with you. And if you dive a little deeper and just knowing about the kind of things that mold can cause, there's actually, there's treatment and, you know, there's answers to the problems that are going on. And so it's, it's hopeful. Um, you know, it can be a little bit of a scary subject, but it also is really validating to people who have been sick for a long time and just been told there's nothing wrong. So yeah, um, like I said, you know, the symptoms can really range. Everyone presents a little bit differently and they may not always seem super related. Most commonly I would say it would be kind of allergy symptoms. That would be like sinus congestion, itchy, watery eyes, coughing, wheezing, that's affecting our lungs. 
a lot of headaches, brain fog. Um, people will kind of be telling a story and then sort of like forget the words, like being un unable to like remember the names for things is pretty common. Um, rashes are big. GI symptoms, diarrhea or constipation, I see pretty frequently. Sensitivity to light and sound. Um, and then a lot of body pain, specifically joint pain or pain that comes in zaps. A lot of my patients describe they kind of have these zaps that almost feel like electrical shocks throughout the body. That's a big tip to think about mold. Um, urinary frequency and increased thirst. And let's see, numbness and tingling. Yeah, so really affecting anywhere head to toe. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah that, I would say maybe that, top three would be um, anxiety, sinus congestion, and peeing a lot. Okay, interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's like it can really affect anything. So I'd imagine, you know, as a physician, that can be really hard to put two and two together and realize, oh, this is presenting as mold, where it might seem like it could be 30 other things. Exactly. Yeah, what I was like. yeah. yeah exactly. And only so 20% of the population has a certain type of genetics where they're unable to recognize and eliminate toxins. So, you know, say I was someone who had these types of genes, I could go into an area with sometimes even just a little bit of mold and immediately feel sick because my body is unable to get it out of the body. Whereas, you know, luckily 80% of the population doesn't have this genetic issue. And so they're much able to, even if they're exposed to mold, kind of, you know, get it out as we get out other types of toxins in the body. That's exactly what I was wondering. Are there some people that are just more susceptible um, mm -hmm. to the, the effects of mold? Yeah. Um, so definitely with the genetics and also looking into what types of places people have lived in, kind of looking at their long-term exposure. You know, were they living in a moldy apartment just for a few weeks when they were on vacation or was their childhood home? Did it have a lot of flooding and damage and they were exposed for a long time? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So and just being exposed to it for longer could make you more um, susceptible. Yes, right? definitely. Yeah. definitely. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Um, Stacey, you want to go ahead and ask the next yeah, question? Yeah, I, I, I thought maybe I cut you off. Sorry. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so you talked a little bit about what the effects of um, mold and how it impacts the detoxification pathways. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about exactly what is happening there and why that might um, matter for somebody? Yeah, so the... I, I use a bucket analogy in my practice a lot. If you think of, you know, we are these buckets and when we start having symptoms, our buckets overflow. Things that add into the bucket would be like mold exposure, chronic infections, past trauma, um, toxins in our food, eating pro-inflammatory foods, you know, drinking unfiltered water, living next to a highway. All of these things start filling up the bucket. The bucket spills over, then you start having symptoms. So a ways to, you know, not to decrease the load in the bucket would be not only stop adding things in, but also punch holes in the bucket to get the water to come down. Punching holes in the bucket would be things like supporting our organs of detoxification, liver, kidneys, gut, um, lungs, skin a little bit as well. Um, you know, moving our bodies, eating green vegetables, you know, balancing our stress, being on certain types of supplements to help with detox, all of these things poke holes in the bucket, get the water level down so we're not showing symptoms. And so mold not only, so mold will get into it, like I said, gets into the bile, gets into the liver, kind of makes this turn super, super sludgy. And we're the liver is unable to sort of cycle it through, clean the, 
clean the bile, clean everything like that. And um, the, you know, the bucket is just all the holes are plugged up and everything's overflowing. We're having tons of symptoms there. Yeah. And so even things, you know, even things that normally we're able to handle things like um, maybe perfumes or, you know, cleaning with bleach when a person is really sick with mold, they can't be around any kind of additional chemical exposure because their symptoms will increase. They'll get horrible brain fog. Um, you know, their pain will get worse. Their headaches will get worse um, from any kind of additional exposure there, just because everything is just sort of stopped and our body doesn't have enough glutathione to go in and get all those free radicals because the tank is just kind of empty. So interesting. Yeah, I love that analogy of the bucket. And it's so true because it's never just one thing contributing. You know, it's everything together, which we all have different things happening. But I'd imagine that can be really confusing for people because they're like, oh, I used to be able to deal with this or be okay, maybe eating a certain thing or dealing with certain perfumes. And then all of a sudden they have these massive reactions from it. And, you know, not knowing if they have mold and that could be the contributing factor, that can be like, really confusing for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one other thing too, that's really interesting um, is so sweating is a way that we're able to, to detox mycotoxins. And sometimes I'll, I'll know a patient needs to do a lot of detoxification work when they'll say, oh, you know, I'll be outside on a really hot day and I just don't sweat. So not only is our liver affected there, but our, you know, we're not even able to excrete extra toxins through our skin. People will be really, really constipated and just completely backed up and unable to eliminate that way. So everything just kind of shuts down. Hmm. Yeah, that's hard that it also can contribute to constipation because, you know, that's how we get so many of our toxins out. So mm -hmm. again, it's just like gas on the fire and mm -hmm. it's just one thing after another, the perfect storm. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. But so, I do, I do oh. love the idea. I was just going to say, I love the, the, also yeah. the analogy of the bucket because it's also like, even just taking little things out, like, you know, I, obviously we talked about this last week that it's impossible to, to, um, to prevent being exposed to every single, you know, pollutant around. I mean, we're just always going to have be faced with these things, but if we can start to little by little sort of peel the layers off, then we could, you know, at least put ourselves in a better position, hopefully. Yes, absolutely. Every little bit counts. We can't just be living in bubbles, not exposed to anything. So, yeah. yeah. So true. Mm -hmm. So if someone is thinking, okay, maybe my house has mold, maybe I have some of these signs and symptoms that you guys are talking about. I'm curious, how would one go about testing for mold? Um, I'm curious the kinds of tests that you utilize with your patients. I know you mentioned there was, you know, a genetic factor. Is that ever something you also mm -hmm. test for? Um, so I'd love if you could touch on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I, there is, you can test for the genes. I rarely do it in that I think it instills a lot of fear in people. The, the term for this certain type of HLA is actually called, it's like the dreaded type. And I don't want to fill my patients with dread. You know, so people think, okay, I have these genes, you know, I'm screwed. That's it. And that's not the case. I've seen patients with this dreaded haplotype get so much better. And I think it's just, it's an unnecessary stress to put on people, um, especially with, you know, epigenetics, do we know this gene is being expressed? I don't know. So yeah, I don't test for the gene. Um, sometimes I'll have patients who have had it tested with a previous provider. And so they know, and there's just a lot of fear around it. And I really think with healing, like the more positive kind of 
mental state we can be in, the more successful the therapies are. Rather, you know, people are already super anxious thinking that they're dealing with mold anyway, so I don't like to add to that. Um, the best way to test, so you could test, you can test the house and then you can test the person. Um, if money isn't an issue or, you know, there's enough resources there to pay for the urinary mycotoxin testing, that is by far the best way to test. Um, so this is a urine test. I'd like to do a provoke test where you actually give a little bit of glutathione for a week and then you have the patient do something to invoke sweating. So whether that's going to sauna, exercise, something to break a sweat, and then they give the urine sample. The glutathione helps tease the mycotoxins out of the body and then the sweating causes a little bit of a release as well if the patient can sweat. Um, and so that gives kind of the most accurate test for the overall burden of mycotoxins. So that's like the best way to know. Um, other things you can do is if there's someone who maybe has a few mold symptoms, maybe they lived in a water damaged home, they're not really sure, and maybe they need a little bit more convincing that this is um, this testing is something we need to, to really consider. There's an online test, um, it's a vision test called the VCS, it stands for Visual Contrast Sensitivity. It's about 15 bucks and what it does is it looks at how you, if you're able to detect little minor changes in images at a very low contrast. And if people show have a positive test for that, that means that mycotoxins could have, um, they can damage the optic nerve. And so you can actually have vision changes from that. Again, it's not diagnostic of mold, but it's sort of pointing in that direction. In terms of testing the home, uh, my favorite way to do that is through something called an ERMI. That's the environmental relative moldiness index. And it basically involves, you can kind of like Swiffer the floor or use a vacuum and you, and you test different areas of the house. And then in the lab, they go and they see how many species are present and how much of each species of mold um, are there. And they kind of give you a score at the end. Um, and then there's a couple other, there's air testing. I don't really like air testing in that, for example, the spores of Stachybotrys are actually really heavy. So if you just test the air, you could have a lot of black mold in the house, but it won't come up positive because they're all on the ground. Um, and you can also do furniture testing. So mold can sometimes grow in like futon mattresses, bed mattresses, couches. And that's when you take a little agar plate and you tap on the furniture, you do a tap test, and then you send that off to the lab and they see what grows out on the agar. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes, even with the urinary mycotoxin testing, sometimes it comes back negative and my clinical suspicion is just so high based on the person's symptoms and their history that we can kind of just start some treatment just assuming that there's mold there. Maybe that maybe they were unable to detox any mycotoxins whatsoever because they were so sick. Um, so we can just treat based on the symptoms too and see how they feel. I love that yeah, you that, said was... that the um, that the genetics testing is not a hundred percent reliable because people yeah. you're you're so right people see that and then they just get so scared. Um, so I'd rather and you know just knowing that those genes don't have to be expressed and that you can still really get better from that. Mm -hmm. So I had a question about the um, the VCS testing. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed that it's like reliable? Because I've had people that say they take it and like they'll take it one time it says one thing they take it another time and says it's something different. And they're just like, how reliable is that, you know? You know, like I said, it's kind of like a tool to push us in the right direction. I usually only recommend it for people who um, need a little bit more kind convincing. of convincing. Yeah, exactly. And so every time I've done it, I've actually had it come back positive. And so my patients have been like, oh, okay, well, let's do this. 
Um, I actually don't, I rarely have people repeat it. So that's really interesting. I do know there used to be just one version of it um, through survivingmold.com, which is Dr. Rishi Shoemaker, who's kind of, he's a medical doctor, really a pioneer in the mold illness field. And now there are other, um, there are other versions of it. Some of them are free even. And so maybe it, it might be an issue with the quality of the test. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, with, with, things like inflammation of the optic nerve that can wax and wane depending on what else is going on in the body the same one if your knee is inflamed um so maybe they're getting the negative test on days when their inflammation is lower mm. i would say yeah so again that's just sort of that's like a tool i wouldn't say it's ever like a diagnostic test or that's something i put a lot of merit in right do you um you have a mold protocol do you have you know something that you sort of do with everyone is it the same is it different with each person how does that look yeah totally different with each person i mean with naturopathic medicine in general it's really treating the person and not just treating the condition but there are you know there's a general guideline of things that i do um the most important thing if possible is to get out of the moldy environment you know the analogy of um it's kind of treating treating mold if you're living in a moldy house is sort of like you're in a shower with a towel trying to dry off and the shower is just running. You know, you can you can make some progress, but it's it really everything works so much better if if the patient can get out of the, the moldy environment. That's probably the hardest part of my job is telling someone that they need to move. Um, it's great when people are renting, it's a lot easier, but you know, there are people who have lived in homes for 20, 25 years and that's their home. And you know, their home is is making them really sick and it's, it's really, really, really hard. Not my favorite part, but even if, you know, and there are some times when people can't get out of the house and that doesn't mean that it's hopeless. Um, there's lots of things we can do to protect them and get them feeling better. It's just, they probably won't get back to the 100% state of health until they're out of the mold. Um, and so kind of like what Leah said before um, with constipation being a big issue, the first step is to get people having regular bowel movements. So I would say, you know, first up, get people pooping regularly because then we add in a toxin binder and then we add in antifungal support. If someone is constipated or not eliminating effectively and you give them a lot of antifungals, things that kill the mold, they're gonna feel way worse because now they have, have all this mold getting killed off in their body and they can't get it out. So sometimes, you know, this can take weeks um, to make sure people are having, I, I really aim for like two to three good bowel movements per day. That's through like adequate hydration, increasing fiber in the diet, supporting the bile, um, doing things like castor oil packs, um, which is like an old school naturopathic remedy. It's really good for the liver and the gut, uh, abdominal massage. Um, and then we add in the toxin binders. Um, those are things like chlorella, bentonite clay, activated charcoal, and the binders themselves can, can stop people up. So that's why I aim for two to three bowel movements at first. And then once they have binders on board, if they're having one to two every day, um, that's great. And different binders are good for different mycotoxins. And so that's why it's really good to test to know what's in the body so I can better kind of target the protocol um, for the individual and what their past exposure was. <clears throat> And throughout all this time, we're supporting the organs of detox. Those are the emunctories, uh, liver, kidney, GI tract, skin, um, lungs, you know, doing things with supplements and herbs and drainage remedies. And then we add in the antifungal agents. Um, in Oregon, you know, I can prescribe medications, but I really just try and stick to herbs. I feel like 
they are more effective and they're much gentler and they really work uh, much more in synchrony with the body. And I think, you know, some of my patients are very, very sensitive and can only tolerate small doses of things. And I think herbs are just way, way uh, better treatment than, than the pharmaceuticals, which are pretty heavy heading and can be hard on the liver. So some antifungal herbs, um, oregano, thyme, artemisia, tulsi or holy basil, olive, powder arco, they're all amazing and super yummy too. You can get people to use them in cooking. Some of them at least like the oregano and thyme. Um, and lastly, we also want to break up some biofilms. So if you think about like a slime mold, mold is kind of hanging out in this like gelatinous goo and it can kind of protect itself behind this goo. You could throw all the herbs and medications at the mold, but if it's, if it's protected, it's not gonna get effectively killed. So I use a little bit of a biofilm breaker. Um, xylitol is actually a really great one, the sugar alcohol, but my favorite is um, actually a tea with this herb called cystis. Cystis is amazing, it's rich in antioxidants, it's really delicious, I can even get kids to drink it. Um, and it's a little bit of a gentle biofilm breaker. So the, mold, the, the biofilm is a little bit sort of broken up and then all the herbs that you're taking can target the mold a little bit better. Um, what else? Let's see. Oh, I love to bring in supportive therapies um, like sauna. Sauna is so amazing. Like I said, sweating is one of the best ways to get the body rid of mycotoxins. Um, giving in some additional detoxification support like N-acetylcysteine, glutathione, milk thistle, turmeric, which is such a great antioxidant, anti-inflammatory. Um, and similar to, you know, going back to the whole bucket analogy, so that's a way to poke holes in and get the mold out. We also want to reduce any additional exposure to mold and to additional toxins. So that's cleaning up our personal care products, filtering air and water, um, and then using, making sure we're using as natural as possible uh, cleaning products for the home too. Oh, and I was so happy to hear that you mentioned this at, uh, in the detox podcast, um, talking about EMFs. I always approach this topic a little tentatively because I don't want people to think, you know, I'm advocating to wear like a tinfoil hat and, you know, live. it's impossible to like really filter ourselves. But especially with mold illness, so obviously, you know, the radiation can affect our bodies, but it also affects the mold. And so mold living on our bodies, if you go into an area like a shopping mall with tons of like, you know, Wi-Fi and magnetic radiation and everything, um, the mold is the mold feels threatened by the radiation. So it will actually secrete more mycotoxins, making a person feel sicker. So I've worked with people that are unable to go into like department stores or malls or you know areas with tons of Wi-Fi like airports because they just feel so much sicker from that. Mm. So as much as possible, you know, turning your cell phone into airplane mode at night and ideally hardwiring your house if you can and those types of things just to reduce our exposure can can work wonders and it's such a simple fix. At least, you know, the, the airplane mode is simple. Hardwiring your house is a little bit more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> totally. That's so interesting. I've never heard about the EMFs with the mold. I'm so happy you brought that up. And it, I mean, it makes total sense, right? Um, wow, that is so eye-opening. I also love that you use, you know, natural herbs and the fact that they're just as, if not more effective than pharmaceuticals. And I think this really surprises a lot of people because we just, you know, with this West, Western mentality, assume the drug is going to work better and will have better results. But in reality, you know, an herb can do just as much, if not more, and not have the negative side effects. So that's amazing. 
I had a question. Do you um, start like when you're using the herbs, do you just use one at a time? Do you combine them? And then also, do you combine it with the um, the tea that you said you use um, to break down biofilms? Do you do that all at once or is that in separate state steps? Great question. So one thing I didn't mention is the two main areas of the body that we're treating are the sinuses because you breathe in the mold and it will colonize our sinuses. That causes the congestion and the headaches and the allergy symptoms. And then the gut because we'll, you know, you'll have postnasal drip, you swallow that mucus that has the mold in it and then it will colonize the gut. So I always start with the sinus treatment. And yes, um, people will start the tea, you know, pretty early on because it's delicious. It has a lot of really great health properties. Um, and then we'll start, you know, for, it kind of depends on the patient in terms of how aggressively we can head it. You know, when you have a big die off, like if we went in and just, you know, I gave them all the bells and whistles of the treatment and you killed the mold really quickly, you can have what's called like a Herxheimer reaction or a die off reaction when it's just kind of like too much too fast. Your body's basically unable to get all of the killed organisms out of your body, a lot of inflammation, and people feel worse. Um, there are some practitioners out there that think like if you're not herxing, you're not treating it hard enough, but I'm not in that boat at all. I ideally like to get people like just up to the point of that, but never actually get into the herx land. Um, and so it totally depends on the patient. Sometimes people can just tolerate like just a little bit of just one herb at a time. You know, they open a capsule of activated charcoal, dip their finger in it, lick their finger, and that's their dose. Some people have a stronger constitution and they need they need to be on like three herbs at once, um, can handle like large doses of binders and just need kind of more in their system to get through. So it really depends on the individual. Uh, my patients usually know if they're of the more sensitive type, like they'll say they'll take some supplements, but they only take like, you know, a quarter of the recommended dose because it just affects them too much. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So I assume it obviously depends on, you know, the individual and their treatment and how many herbs they're starting. But do you have like a rough average of how long it would take someone assuming, you know, is that like the worst question? Because there's no answer. <laughs> not the worst but... question. It's the most common question because people feel crummy yeah. and they get excited That's about right. feeling better. So it, totally. it, again, you know, it depends on the patient. Um, I say minimum one year. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, it depends on how quickly a patient's able to, to get through, you know, sometimes people take time. I've had patients who take time off work and they're like, you know, what? I'm just going to focus on healing and it's okay if I feel crummy because I can like be home and relax. And then I have patients who have kids and a job and, you know, they're, they're unable to feel crummy all the time. And so we have to go slower. But yeah, it depends mostly on like, are they still being exposed? Minimum one year, though, is what I tell people. You know, I have a lot of analogies in my practice. Another one is you can't really expect to walk 10 miles into the woods and then get out in four. You kind of have to walk the 10 miles back. But that doesn't mean that people don't feel better right away, especially with dietary changes, which I haven't talked about yet. Um, but people sometimes feel better in a few weeks, even though, you know, we're going to treat for a lot longer than that. But people's brain fog goes away, joint pain, they are sleeping more soundly through the night, they feel more grounded and stable in their bodies. So just because I say a minimum of a year, it doesn't mean it's going to take a year before they notice any differences. Mm -hmm. 
Awesome. Yeah. yeah my other question, question <laughs> based on uh, what you were saying before with, you know, having patients move and, or if they can't move. So is it pretty much like a lost cause? If someone has mold in their house, is there no way to a hundred percent get rid of it? Is it the kind of thing where you really need to move to a new build or, you know, go somewhere where you test it and there's no mold and you're a hundred percent. So I'm curious about that as well. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent call. So excellent question. So no, you can remediate homes depending on the extent of the damage. Um, it's really important to work with a mold inspector and remediator who are mold literate. There's a lot of home inspectors that obviously if like the wall is rotting, they'll be like, okay, this needs to be fixed. Um, but it's really, I really recommend working with people who understand the health implications of mold and of water damage, because even if, you know, say it's just in the basement, there's flooding and there's a wall that is, you know, not good. Mold can get picked up in the HVAC system and distributed throughout the house. Luckily, you know, as we're just learning more and more about mold as it's becoming more of an issue, there's better technologies coming out. And so there's actually um, these home fogging agents where you basically diffuse, um, oh God, there's a lot of stuff in it, but it's, it's really natural. They're like um, plant enzymes and essential oils that you kind of fog the house with and can kill the mycotoxins and denature them throughout the home. So sometimes if people are living in their homes while they're getting remediated, you just wanna have it protected. Um, you know, people make sure there's like the Tyvek kind of wall up to keep that part of the house separate. You don't really wanna be continuously like going into the area of the home that's getting fixed. Other things too um, is that, so mold can get into paper products like old books is a big one, photo albums, um, leather boots, leather belts, it can, it can live in there. And so it doesn't mean you have to go ahead and throw away all your photo albums and all of your books. Um, what I usually tell people is to get like thick plastic, one time I tell people to buy plastic, but those thick plastic storage bins, like big Rubbermaid totes, put everything um, into those and then just put them in storage, like whether that's renting a storage unit or putting them in the garage, just put them away while we work on healing them, we're healing the patient. And there's a chance as they're more resilient, as you know, they're healthier, they are able to go back and use those products without getting re-exposed and without getting sick. If, you know, once they're all done and healed, their mycotoxin test is negative, they're feeling a lot better, they go and they open their old photo albums and you know, people people who um, have mold illness usually get really good about knowing when they're in an unsafe area. Like they can walk into a building and be like, oh, I feel like congestion starting. This isn't safe for me, I'm gonna leave. And so if they go back and open their old books and things and, and react to them, then you may want to, you know, invest in a scanner and scan all the photos and yeah, keep them away. But no, it's it's still possible to to fix the home, mostly, usually um and to live in the house while it's getting fixed depending on the extent of the damage but one oh one thing i just want to say that this is really important and it's been missed um in a few cases i've had which is sad is that you know remeeting a home can be really expensive thousand twenty thousand dollars to fix you know some damage and at the end of that people you know they've exhausted their savings they don't want to do post remediation testing because it's another few hundred dollars thousand dollars it is so important to do post remediation testing to make sure that the problem is gone. 
Um, it's really great if the people that do the testing aren't the same people who did the, the remediation, who did the construction. I kind of see that as a little bit of a red flag conflict of interest because obviously they want it to come back negative. So it's always great if you can find um, people to work with who use a third party post remediation testing. Really excellent information. Um, I did have two more questions before yeah. we went on to the next. Um, are you at all concerned with using binders for such a long period of time because people may end up depleting other of their important nutrients from their diet? Um, and then also, when do you know when to stop treating? Mm. So, okay, binders question, yes, which is why I'm usually supplementing with a whole foods diet, rich in phytonutrients, putting people on mineral supplements, um, making sure, you know, we're not having any huge like deficiencies there. I will say with the binders, if um, you, the binders have things to bind because they're working at toxin with toxins too. If toxins weren't being eliminated and we were just taking a lot of binders, then I feel like they'd be more likely to bind nutrients. Not that they're technically like smart enough to work in that way, but you know, just making sure people um, are consuming really, really high nutrient diet just in case things are getting are getting wasted there. Yeah, and things like, um, I use chlorella a lot as a binder and it's really, really gentle. It also is a brilliant green color and has lots of antioxidants in it too. And chlorella, you can like take handfuls of it all day. You know, I'm not saying do that, but it's, it's pretty safe. Um, <laughs> usually doesn't constipate people and doesn't cause any um, sort of nutrient deficiency. Okay. It's a little tricky with binders though, and that you have to take them by themselves. You've, you know, if you take binders and eat, the binders will bind the food. If you take binders the same time you take a medication, they'll bind the medication. So you want to, you know, separate things by at least an hour to make sure that the binders is just binding the toxins that are being released and not anything else. Yeah. Okay. And then I'm sorry, what was your, uh, when do you know oh. when to stop treating? Yeah. So I usually will retest the mycotoxin um, test anywhere from like six months to a year after we start treatment and just see what happens. Interestingly, sometimes after you start treatment, um, the mycotoxin numbers can go up. That doesn't mean that people are getting sicker. It just meant that the first result probably wasn't that accurate. And because the people, patients were unable to properly detox. And so it's just a sign it's, you know, people will get freaked out when they see that totally understandably, but it really just means, um, okay, this is probably a better snapshot of where you were in the beginning and there's still more treatment to go through. Yeah. I will say I had one patient though, who just felt like we, she was so compliant and just felt a million times better and was like kind of just back to her regular self. And she was like, I don't want to do the urinary mycotoxin test. I can't afford it. And I was like, okay, well, pretty much all of your symptoms have completely resolved. So we don't have to. Right. Yeah. That was great. I have one more question about the testing. So let's say someone was exposed like five, 10 years ago. Would you still test them like today, let's say, and get the same amount on that test of mycotoxins, do you think? Or if their body's like detoxing, would it be lower and then not pick it up? Does it matter like when they were exposed, I guess is my question, when you test? Yeah, so that kind of goes into whether, you know, exposure or are you having like a colonization? Like if you were exposed 15 years ago and you are not part of that 20% that can't detox and you're able to get a lot of the mold out of your body, your test may not come back positive. 
if you were exposed and the mold kind of was able to take hold in your body, hang out in the fat cells, hang out in your bile and just kind of linger for a long time, then your test would come back positive. Um, I would say m like 95% of the people who I'm treating, it's more of a chronic exposure. So things that happened, you know, anywhere from, you know, five years to 10 years. Rare, occasionally I'll have someone where it's like, oh no, the place I was living last year was super moldy. Uh, that's when I started all my symptoms and their test is, is positive. I don't, it's hard to say whether it's like more positive or it would be a high, you can't really equate the number that you get um, to the, the, um, the length of time of the exposure. It's not like if you were exposed yesterday and you tested, your numbers would be really high. It doesn't always work like that. Basically okay. depends on how much is kind of stuck in your body and hanging out there. Right. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Okay, awesome. So you've kind of touched on this already in terms of like a whole foods diet and the importance of, you know, avoiding constipation. But can you talk a little bit more about what role food plays specifically in a mold protocol? Mm -hmm. Yeah, food is foundation really for any any type of thing that we're treating, but especially with mold illness. Um, so we want to focus on foods that don't have any mold in them and are also low in sugar. Sugar basically just acts like a fertilizer to mold and yeast in our body and kind of just trigger it to grow even faster. So I really focus on, you know, a whole foods diet, rich and really colorful fruits and vegetables, especially the non-starchy type, um, wild caught fish, healthy fats like olive oil, avocados, coconut, you know, mana, coconut cream. Um, if patients eat meat, I ask them to just eat grass-fed meat only. The grain-fed, um, there's myco there's oftentimes mold in the grains that the animals are eating, and so they mycotoxins can then be in the meat even. Um, not only is that also you know not good for the planet and not health promoting, but there's also could be mycotoxins in it. Um, I love if people can avoid all the big pro-inflammatory foods, gluten, dairy, sugar, corn, soy. Um, because they increase systemic inflammation even more and can harm our immune system. And then foods to avoid. This is really interesting because um, one of the big ones is fermented foods. And, you know, we're always talking about how amazing foods with like natural sources of probiotics are, things like yogurt and kefir and kimchi and pickles and all that kind of stuff. But if you have mold illness, it can actually make things worse because these foods are really high in histamine. Histamine is something, for those of you who may not know, that's made by our cells, and it's kind of what gives you allergy symptoms. It's really pro-inflammatory. It gives you, you know, the itchy, watery eyes, hives, sinus congestion. Our body's already making histamine in response to the mold because the histamine's kind of attacking the mold, and it's a way for the body to try and, you know, get rid of it. So putting in the really high histamine foods, it just adds too much fuel to the fire, and people usually feel a lot crummier when they're eating them. Um, other foods that are moldy to avoid would be like cheeses, mushrooms, dried fruits, smoked or processed meats, alcohol, and unfortunately, chocolate and coffee, the fun things. Um, there are some coffee brands out there that have that are processed in a special way that don't have mycotoxins, um, like Bulletproof and the Purity brand is really great. The nice thing about being in Portland is that there's so many local coffee places here that roast their own beans. And so when you buy a coffee at the grocery store, it was probably roasted like a year ago and it's been sitting on the shelf and that's when the mold grows. If you can get something that was really freshly roasted in the last week, two weeks, and just keep it in your freezer, most of the time my patients can tolerate um, just like good high quality organic coffee that's been recently roasted, which is good because yeah, we need it here in the gray month and uh, <laughs> it's hard to take it away from people. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, nuts can be moldy, um, especially peanuts. Um, some like seeds are usually a little bit better. Almonds are okay. Most nuts, most nuts can be moldy too. And you can kind of taste it. Like if you have raw walnuts, sometimes you can like almost like taste mm -hmm. the mold on them. Yeah. Not so, not so good there. And this isn't always like, I always tell people, you know, everyone is different. Sometimes people can be like, oh no, I have, you know, I have, um, like I can eat raisins. I can eat trail mix, dried fruit and nuts, and I feel totally fine. But if I have cheese, that's when I get really symptomatic. And so you kind of have to play around with what you react to. I recommend a minimum of three weeks of sort of following this low mold diet, just because people usually feel a lot better. And then, you know, if their favorite food is pecans or something, they can play, they can try and see how they feel when they have some. Sometimes it's also too, it's like, how much of it are you eating? Are you having peanut butter sandwiches every single day? Or, you know, once in a while, do you have like a scoop of peanut butter on an apple or something like that? Do you find that really? like the nuts are sprouted or soaked or something? Does that make it any better? Or? I, I usually people just, just feel better when they don't have any of them. I will say, yeah, you know, soaking or sprouting the nuts decreases the phytic acid, which is so inflammatory. So in that way, it may be better. But especially with the soaking too, I am often just nervous that maybe that could be harboring more mold growth. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I usually tell people just let's just cut them out for now. Yeah. And we can try and add them back in later. Yeah. Yeah. And then anything too, like processed foods that, you know, have simple carbs that are broken down into sugar, people feel better if they avoid those. Awesome. Yeah. That's a really extensive list. I'm glad that you mentioned the histamine <laughs> intolerance too, because, you know, we're hearing left and right eat all these fermented foods and it could make you feel horrible. And usually when I'm talking about histamine intolerance, it's kind of that same analogy with the bucket. Like you can tolerate a little bit, but if you have mold, I imagine that bucket is so much smaller. So you really can't tolerate quite as much. So, um, but that can be a really difficult diet for people to follow in general, even things like leftovers yeah. have a lot of histamines, which people don't think about. So you have to like freeze all your leftovers and then have everything really fresh. And it's just, it's very complex and histamines are hiding in a lot of places you also wouldn't suspect. So I'd imagine that would be a, a difficult part of the diet for people to follow. Absolutely, yeah. On top of everything else they're having to deal with, they're having to like, right. you know, have like individual portions of previously frozen meals. And, you know, it, unfortunately with histamine too, it does cut out a lot of other health promoting foods, you know, like mm -hmm. strawberries and spinach and eggplant. Like those are really amazing foods for, most people, um, but you just have to be careful. And especially when people don't know about histamine too, because they don't really follow any rhyme or reason, like the foods I just mentioned, and then citrus, they're like, wait, I thought all these things were supposed to be good for me. Like, they, I don't know. So it's always a long conversation. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, you've taken a really, I think, sort of fearful topic and one that people want to uh, like hide away from. And I think you've given, you've given just, you've made it more simple and you've given so much hope that there's so much that we could do to just like feel better from this. So I really, really do thank you. I'm going to be listening to this probably over and over and taking notes on everything so that I can make sure to optimize the way that I help my patients. And But I really do appreciate this information. Do you have any sort of last um, minute pieces of advice that you feel like maybe we missed? Yeah, I think just, you know, not mold is everywhere and it's, you know, it's okay. Um, it's not, I don't, 
the last thing I want to do is like freak people out too much. There's lots of really amazing resources. I would say um, looking at, there's an organization called ICI. It's the International Society of Environmentally Acquired Illness. I think I got that right. Um, and so looking for mold literate practitioners in your area, if you feel like this is something that you're, you're working with, you know, and they're not always naturopathic doctors. I barely learned about mold in my in my graduate school. It was kind of like, oh, you know, we I think there was one lecture where like mold can be bad, know about it, or like, you know, but so many people don't believe in it. And it can be really, really challenging for someone who is saying, like, yes, you know, there are things that are wrong with me. Like I'm having these symptoms. I'm not crazy. It's not all in my head. And people get the door shut in their face and they're like, oh no, there's, you know, you're, you know, you're just making this up or you're, you know, and that's not true. And even in the way insurance companies cover things is like back when I was taking insurance, I had to be really careful about charting and I wouldn't ever mention mold. You could say, you know, like exposure to a water damaged building because that's, that's known to have negative health effects. Um, but there's been stories of insurance companies not wanting to pay for visits if they're treating mold because it's not real. But I can say mold illness is 100% real and people feel so much better when the sources of mold are removed and we're just you know, doing things to really promote overall health, support detox, um, eliminating other toxins. And also something um, too with just indoor air quality, especially now with quarantine and in the Pacific and the whole West Coast too with the, with the smoke, you really wanna keep your house as healthy as possible, having lots of plants, opening the windows every day when it's safe to, um, using non-toxic cleaning products. And yeah, I think, yeah, don't just, don't be fearful. There's help out there. Look for um, mold literate practitioners. There's, you know, look at some databases on, on the internet to find them. And yeah, just reach out to me if you have any questions. I'd be more than happy to, to answer them and point you in the right direction. Yeah, Amazing. You well, thank you so I'm much. For, go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I'm so happy to have you on because like we talked about, you're framing this in such a positive light, which I really appreciate because there can be so much fear and obviously so much information. I mean, we just covered so much. I'm sure we could go on for another <laughs> many hours talking about this, but you know, to have someone like you who's so you know passionate about this and also can hold your hand along the way, because like you said, it's a minimum of one year. So you really want someone who knows what they're doing and can utilize all these natural medicines and really guide you along the way. So I'm just so appreciative that you're sharing this with us and with our listeners and all of that. And so um, do you want to, unless you have something else you want to add, Stacey, um, we can let our listeners know how best to find Kat. And if you think you have mold illness, um, reach out to her, ask her your questions. Um, and so we'll let you take it away from here. Oh, I yeah, yeah, if you want to just tell people okay. how to find you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the best way to reach me is through my website. It's www.drkatboden.com. That's D-R-K-A-T-B-O-D-D-E-N. My email is hello at drkatboden.com. Um, and then I'm on Instagram, um, dr.catboden. And yeah, I'd love to hear from you. This is something I'm so passionate about. And I really just want people to feel like they're at their optimum health and also realize that they're not crazy. Like it's just so validating to, to work with someone and be like, no, there, there's this, not only do we know what's going on, but there's a solution. And just to give people their life back is really all I want to do. So yeah, I look forward to hearing from you. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun and I can't wait to hear from our listeners what they think. So thank you again. Yeah. Thank you so thank much for you having are. me. This is really great. <laughs> I love talking about it, especially food too. Um, so just kudos to you and your podcast and all that you were talking about. I've just really been enjoying listening to it and hearing all the amazing information you've been sharing. Awesome. The world needs more of that right now. <laughs> Have a good week, everyone. See you next time. Have a good week. Bye.